You're listening to episode 37 of Paz de Chipotle. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food history writer, cook, and author. And on this podcast, I explore the gastronomic traditions of Mexico and bring together the voices of cooks, authors, and entrepreneurs who build cross-cultural bridges around the world, championing Mexican food. To find more information about the podcast, please go to pasdechipotle.com. You can subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Player FM, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Paz de Chipotle. I hope you're all keeping warm during this blasting polar vortex. And just to let you know, and obviously not to make you jealous at all, here in Mexico, the days are increasingly warm and sunny as we shake off this long winter. Today's episode features the first interview of the year with anthropologist and food consultant Yolene Benjamin, who joined me for a conversation from Toronto, Canada. After studying fine arts and education, followed by social work and cultural anthropology in her native Amsterdam, Jolene moved to London to pursue a master's degree in anthropology of food at SOAS, the University of London's School of Oriental and African Studies. Since then, she has done extensive work involving food literacy, menu developing, recipe testing and consulting. Yoling co-founded the London-based award-winning culinary incubator Soup Stories on Our Plate, which provides professional training and career acceleration for migrant chefs and traditional cooks. Now residing in Canada, she continues collaborating with other social enterprises and food literacy educators. I met Yolene last year in London while creating a photographic memoir of the cuisines and traditions of migrant cooks. We make constant references to intercultural exchange and we discuss a range of topics that are the backbone of both of our professional projects. So we talked about food studies, anthropology, culinary identities and food activism. We also explored the relevance of creating purposeful social enterprises that, through food, they can create empowerment and facilitate a better exchange. Also, check this episode's notes and go to this episode's blog post on my website, pasdechipotle.com, to get the links to the books, projects and website that we refer to during this conversation, as well as your link's contact details. As ever, with this interview, I hope to continue changing perspectives about the way in which we think about food, our most delicious and common human language. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, Yolene, and thank you for being here, my friend. I've been really looking forward to this conversation for months now. And what a better way to start this new season with you. So welcome. Hello, Rocio. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It is such an honor and a great way to start the new year indeed. It is. So for many people around the world, many of the listeners, of course, or all of them, I would say, and you and me included, we project what food means to us personally and also professionally into our work. 
you know, whether we are passionate about food production or cooking or eating or studying it, like it's our case as well, <laughs> and also creating new ways to understand food practices and why not create good businesses around it. So let me start by uh, laying out some essential aspects for the audience about food studies, which is something we're going to talk about. So food is really one of the most basic needs and commonalities across cultures that we have. And from the very early hunter-gatherers at the dawn of humanity to our modern world, we are all part of this ongoing practice of feeding ourselves and feeding others. However, every civilization and culture has created different values and different symbols and meanings that we all attach to the preparation and consumption of foods and drinks that over time they become traditions and then they also become part of the identity of a whole group and culture. So I would like to discuss with you and if you could break down what <laughs> food studies mean and why is it relevant for this field to exist as a food anthropologist? How do you define this subject and how it has evolved? That is such a great description. So let me start with breaking down um, the word anthropology first. Anthropos is the Greek word for human and ology stands for like a scientific studies. So it's basically the studies of people. So food anthropologists look at the socioeconomic, focusing on historically and culturally variable forms of food production, exchange, preparation and consumption as means through which social bodies are constructed and uh, reproduced. When we look at the history of food anthropology, We often refer to anthropologists like Pierre Bourdieu and through his work on, on how in society we distinct ourselves from the other through our knowledge on a cuisine or, or uh, a food item, for example, that is used in a form of social capital. So think of the clean eating movement in which people only eat organic, unprocessed food, which are so-called like clean foods. However, in many cases, in order to afford this, you'd need certain forms of capital, right? It could be like time, money and knowledge. So in a society where there are many people who cannot afford to put any kind of food on the table, in Canada, for example, that is four million people, eating clean obviously comes with certain types of power and entitlement. Because who has the time and the capital to actually make all these smoothie bowls? If you look at it through the lens of Bourdieu, you will get an interesting understanding of how society operates and that could shed light on certain injustices and problems when it comes to class, status, race, access, like who has access to food, beauty standards and so forth and so on. Um, and over the last two decades, food anthropology has really evolved as a discipline, which I think coincides with the complexities that come with and the politicization of a global food system. The expansion of social movements linked to food, feeding a global and growing world population, and the rising contrast between people being undernourished and overweight. Anthropological theories offer a lens through which we can understand those issues. Food really connects us all. A big part of our identity is defined by what we eat, where we source it from, how we prepare it, and how we do or do not consume it. I'm personally really interested in how food shapes our identities, as well as the relationship between how what we eat affects the environment and the livelihoods of people producing it. 
Well, that is a very compelling <laughs> explanation about what food anthropology is. And sort of summing it up a bit, to put it in simple words, it will be like food anthropology explains how we have created a structure and technology and an organization to produce food, then to prepare it and to share it first. Second, like the more complex aspect, is how then our choices about what we eat and who and why we eat it helps us classify ourselves into those who prepare, those who consume, and uh, why we do it. Social media is just like one of the best tools I think we have uh -huh. for social studies because we volunteer what we hope to eat, what we like to eat, what we are eating, what we are not eating. Sometimes our decisions about what we eat are less about nourishing and more mm -hmm. about ideologies and personal preferences, religion or politics. It seems sometimes like complicated to discern and try to understand why we do what we do, but that is pretty much the work of anthropology to tell exactly. us these are all the implications and obviously food studies at large uh, come in yeah. hand to help us understand where we at. Talking about global aspects that didn't used to affect us now, thanks to trade and our mm -hmm. commercial relationships, politics and social media, we're so globalized. It's so funny how you see in every high street the same fast food chain yeah. restaurants. That also brings a different and very interesting topic that is How do we define the different cuisines in the world when we now see these same types of food that we eat worldwide? You cannot just simplify it by saying in McDonald's menu, you will have wasabi in Japan, guacamole in Mexico, <laughs> or in India. So traditional cuisines have very specific elements that define them. And that is something that I also talked about in the previous episode. First, they are linked to a specific place. And then the geography, whether they are close to mountains or rivers or the ocean and the history mm -hmm. and also the agricultural practices and technology mm -hmm. that developed to cater for the particular needs and tastes for each culture. But if you think about it in a more pragmatic way, food production has defined political and social relationships between nations, those that mm -hmm. produce and those that buy that food. Food really has such a big power. We don't really realize Mm -hmm. the impact it has uh, in our everyday lives and, and how this quest for sourcing foods has altered the history of entire continents. In the mm -hmm. past, we see like sugarcane plantations that were introduced in the Americas that brought also slavery mm -hmm. or how nutmeg and spices changed their relationship between Asia and the Western world and also accelerated the maritime race. But I would like you to talk about more how food systems And by food systems, this is what I mean, or the relationship between who grows it, who buys mm -hmm. it, prepares it, and who eats it. How these practices turn into cultural identities, and mm -hmm. how can we define it? Like, how can we understand these food identities? I think it's very uh, mobile and fluid, and it's open for interpretation. In my interpretation, I see producing, preparing, and consuming food together and for example exchanging gifts of food remembering those shared meals and food related activities uh, i see them as all like moments of creating meaning and contributors to the social construction of our identities what i find interesting is to remember that cuisines were there much earlier than the birth of nations and the nation state and i think that's something 
that we tend to forget. So the idea of a national cuisine is relatively new and part of the idea to build a national identity. Historically, cultural identities are much more tied into region specific. Um, you know, what you were referring to, like what is growing locally, um, what was hunted for, what was gathered, but it was really tied in with the region, the geography, um, the climate. And in the past, the social infrastructure to communicate and exchange, it was nothing compared to the way how we trade and grow foods at the moment. For example, the reason that I can have green beans, which, you know, they only grow in summer. It's a seasonal product. The reason that I can eat them at Christmas, because I want to serve them for my Christmas meal, right? I want to show off is that they're introduced in Kenya as non-traditional commodities. So what does that mean? That means that people who are working the land, subsistence farmers, supplying their family with the food, the crops that they were growing, they would sell them. But also like food, feeding their family was first priority. And they had diversified crops, like they would rotate them and they got expelled from the land because this land was sold off to big conglomerations. And this practice is called land grabbing. Uh, the big conglomerations basically bought, for example, land in Kenya, and people who used to live with the land, they got expelled um, and were not able to grow their own commodities, their, their own crops. But instead, the land that they were living on, what they introduced on was non-traditional crops. Now, green beans was never a crop that would grow in Kenya. But by this introduction, now you see like big, big fields, green beans that are being grown and harvested for not the Kenyan market, but for the European market. So for me to serve my green beans over Christmas and to show off, I can afford buy these crops and serve them for you in a season that is actually off season. I have to pay more for it. It comes with a price. The livelihood of people who were able to, you know, supply their family first. Those people are being expelled of the land, can't be their family anymore. And you, what you see is that more and more people move to the cities or start working as farm workers with no or little rights. That was just a little loop to basically exemplify this global trade system mm -hmm. that has a lot of benefits for people who can afford it, but it has a lot of downsides for the people who cannot afford it. If we go back in time, that infrastructure wasn't there. So like food exchange was happening on a much smaller scale and therefore more region specific. In a globalized world uh, where food can be grown in one side of the globe and transported to another part, as well as having access to endless forms of information of the cuisines and recipes that we have now, we can also choose and build on our cultural identities. It's not necessarily bound to that regions anymore. We can choose, I think, our identity. It's way more fluid now. So I think my personal identity is definitely I would describe it as hybrid for me it's built on the food that I grew up with it really still connects me to to my past and you know the memories that coincide with it and I feel like it's really important to share that with other people as well and use it as an um, as an entry to your culture I just love to eat people's home food to understand more about who they are as a person um, but it's a way in suddenly you find 
so so much that you have in common and you become best friends just wondering how you see it and i think uh well you you touched so many um interesting facts so i'm gonna sort of uh go back a little bit picking up some of the great ideas that you put out there first emphasize the fact that food traditions exist way before countries and then our modern notion of the foods or dishes or cuisines we identify with a certain country are a very modern construct one other thing that we humans like a lot is uh, not having change food identities just as our choices of clothing change over time uh, and I thought it was very interesting how you frame it into your own personal food identity and how it has changed you have been defining your own food choices sometimes like when you want to evoke that sense of home when you are away or share what that feels for you when we meet someone from another country it makes it more accessible to explore a cuisine but also people and their background and their story and, and their traditions how that food represents like in the in the following question is that after seeing you work and seeing you interview people talking about what food means for them, uh, what food has allowed for them in terms of thread new relationships with people from their new country where they're living. In this case, you were interviewing people in England when I met you. Mm-hmm. I wonder, like, there are many traditional cooks that were part of a project in which you worked that is called Soup Stories mm-hmm. on Plate. Uh, that you mm. defined with your colleagues uh, as a culinary incubator. He had like a, a training aspect, but also a practical aspect. Why <laughs> uh, did you have to change in your approach to reframe, to understand the others? You know, these migrant identities and the cultural practices uh, helped ease those relationships. Yeah. So your business, if I get it right, is basically to empower these migrant mm-hmm. min- minorities and they build a personal brand on something that something they already have our gastronomic heritage and you teach them how to turn that into a business idea mm. but i would like to recapitulate just like what is a culinary incubator how did you come to this genius idea of go ahead yeah yeah, yeah. I think I just start uh, from the beginning and then we'll see where it takes us and feel free to jump in at any time um So, yeah, I think uh, I'm just going to lay out the context a little bit. So in 2016, together with my two co-founders, Jack Fleming and Laura Love Petchel, I started an initiative that is called Stories on Our Plate. And as we lovingly call it, soup. At this time, it was just before Brexit. And after the first wave of the Syrian refugees coming into England, it was a very um, unpleasant, like I I noticed that how refugees, migrants were talked about in the media. We picked up on that and we noticed that this was concerning. And uh, we actually wanted to come up with an initiative that would tackle... Hostility, like this unfriendly environment that would not welcome newcomers. On the one hand, Stories on Our Plate tries to build sustainable connections between newcomer uh, migrant home cooks. So wanted to do that, that by setting up an ongoing monthly supper club series in a restaurant-like setting. 
in which home cooks from a migrant or a refugee background, they would share their their cultural foods, their recipes and their stories with paying diners. Food really connects us, you know, like smells, taste, like texture. They really evoke memories and mm. It's so strong. So people really discover that they have so much in common with the, the chef. There was one part, like the ongoing supper club series. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the other hand, we really wanted to tackle the barriers that uh, newcomers face in finding employment. We did this by uh, developing a culinary training initiative. We would immerse them in our network, like skill building and employability training. This 10-week training program had an outcome that people would have their food handler certificate, run their own supper club, become employable ready. What we did is dissecting a regular culinary training program at a college into like being industry-led. So with that, it became like a knowledge, a skill exchange, and our participants got immersed in our network. And at the same time, the people in our network became aware, like, oh my God, there's this amazing chef who is from Nigeria, who can cook up a fantastic jollof rice. So it's really like empowering both sides. That's basically the story of uh, stories on our plate, what we did there. It's a very... Uh, detailed and sort of very personalized project because you're working literally one by one and changing you know one family at the time with this program and also during this the supper mm. clubs mm. I like what you said about how you know just sitting together mm. in one communal table you do feel that sense of home of course you find so mm-hmm. many commonalities through it mm-hmm. it's also trickling down not only inside the migrant community but also outside changing people's perceptions about these cultural exchange and and you know just don't be afraid of of having this personal interaction i experienced it myself it was for a palestinian with nizreen and she prepared this amazing feast i mean it was indescribably tasty and beautiful with an open kitchen you know we all sat together started chatting like to my left I had another success story of the program, uh, which was Shakira Akinosho from Nigeria, mm-hmm. and then the guests, and it was a really, a really beautiful experience. Sometimes I think in the food industry, it sort of gets a bit lost in translation and a bit misinterpreted. Like, mm-hmm. how do you transmit your personal story? There are ways and there are people, more importantly, people like you and many other projects that actually teach people how to do that, how to navigate these communication, you know. Before we actually came up with this whole uh, organization um, and we had to define for ourselves, how do we see the other? How can we act on that? So the idea is that if you label Someone else is other, different than you. It's about power dynamics. So it reduces you to that specific label and those assumptions. We, um, as like co-founders, really thought it was appalling and very disturbing to see how it strips down like people's identities. So it was for us a very conscious decision to actually shy away from using those words. We would refer as much as possible to the people that we work with as, for example, program participants, chefs, home cooks. So we choose a language 
that makes people equal instead of different. So that's one of our biggest mission is to elevate the other and to be on the same level. So unfortunately, you still have to um, work with those terms, but then you can still uh, make the word refugee more humane. Mm-hmm. Um, by referring to people with a refugee status instead of reducing the person to refugee. We created a context in which everyone was treated as a human first. I think that was a really beautiful and important part of what we did. And in our book that we worked on uh, last year, it's called Stories on Our Plate, Recipes and Conversations, we actually used the same method. There are people in there from different cultural background with different national statuses I would say it's to demonstrate that we actually are so much the same and see the human behind anything almost so we'll go back to mention more about the book later on because I think many listeners will be interested in knowing more about that so there's several things you have successfully proven that social enterprises like soup can contribute to actually build a better understanding beyond just mere tolerance. Being tolerant to the other means you just endure the presence of the other in your vicinity. You know, it needs to be a a conscious effort and a permanent activity. Change not only our attitudes towards food, but ultimately, like you said, towards Mm. multiculturalism, to be Mm -hmm. more open, more accepting and embracing these otherness Mm -hmm. and learn from them. Of course, there's many things that have to change in order for that to become permanent, you know, because most of the ideas we have about the others, whether we see them as friends or foes, come from our own education at home, our education at school. It has to change from that. And also it has to change the perspective of policy makers, you know, Mm -hmm. decision makers in the government. I would like you to ponder about how sustainable it is to use food as a social mm-hmm. catalyst. Because I understand like this is a moment that is not going to last forever. And and I actually hope it's not gonna last forever mm-hmm. in that way. You know, I, I hope we go beyond that. So my question is, how do you carry on uh, you know, building this dialogue and creating this type of jobs? So how it has changed and how do you see the future of food incubators? What is their future role in yeah. society? Yeah, um, I think that's a, a really well pointed out. The role for food incubators, it would be amazing to see them increase. I really hope there comes a point in our lives that we are not needed in that particular way. Having said that, um, I can't really look into the future, but I think it looks quite predictable in that social injustice is going to stay with us for a much longer time than we would hope for. But what you see at the same time, an incubator program like this, you know, it is needed to build those bridges. And the rising interests of like food and different cuisines and, you know, like different food trends... I think that people could benefit from those initiatives. It gives you a platform to share your food, your identity, your stories, and gives you like the tools to understand the job market. I hope that they will be growing, but not just for people with a refugee or migrant status, um, also for other people who have different circumstances, have not been able to uh, land in a job being self-employed in a way that they would have liked to in the food industry yeah 
it's a um, good answer. And of course, there will always be difficult situations for migrants. I mean, regardless of borders, we'll have the need to move because that's what we do. We are humans. We are explorers at heart. And I understand yeah. and I uh, think it's very accurate what you say that hopefully food incubators will become increasingly specific to provide specific skills. Those that have established themselves can now help others. And hopefully that is the new shift in soup and many other food incubators. I, I hope by now, and at this point of the in, of the interview, is sort of clear all the many angles that uh, food studies can give us and help yeah. us to solve real problems. It's not about ivory towers, it's about solving <laughs> real problems. I want to talk about something that is very important, but also that is very vague. And many people are not very sure what it is like we hear over and over again about food insecurity in the news and experts talk about that. But I mean, I don't think there's uh, enough down to earth, mm. simple explanations for everyday people yeah. to understand that, how that impacts their lives and what, mm -hmm. what can we all do. The challenges in our present are huge. In this world where we are surrounded by technology and globally connected and have all these amazing tools that enable us to be in touch with people around the world, we are losing basic skills such as food literacy, which means how to cook. Teenagers, young people grow and have no idea what is good for them, what is healthy. And it's ironical that in this day and age of information being thrown on our faces 24-7, we are losing these basic skills mm -hmm. of transmission of food knowledge, like cooking skills, because both parents work, we are being paid less, food has to travel more, mm -hmm. and it makes it expensive. So there's many reasons. Why don't you sort of break down in simple words what is food insecurity and what causes food insecurity? Yeah, let's take a look at food security first. I think that's the easiest way to explain it. What it means when you are a food secure, you have access to healthy, nutritious, delicious, cultural specific and sustainable food at all times. So in other words, you don't have to worry or think about where your next meal comes from. Um, and that when you are feeding yourself and or your family, in theory, you know, that meal is nourishing and sustainable. So with that said, let us then look at what it means to be food insecure. Basically it means, to put it simply, you do not have access to healthy, nutritious, delicious, sustainable and cultural specific food. People who are food insecure, they usually have to worry about where their next meal um, is going to come from constantly. Uh, if they can access food, that it's either highly processed food or we call them food-like substances. So they are presented as foods, but actually they are not. They do not nourish our body and mind. Um, unfortunately, fresh perishables come with a price. That is a lot when you live on, you know, a minimum income. If you've been laid off, uh, but also so the, the housing prices go up, price of fuel goes up. A lot of people end up with not much money that they have spared to invest in like a healthy, nutritious diet. Basically, what underlies it is poverty. So if you want to address food security, uh, we need to address financial inequality on this planet. But then what can we do about that as individuals? 
Mm -hmm. And you came across with a group that did a beautiful work specifically about food literacy. And the initiative I'm talking about, the Rainbow Plate, I would like you to talk more about that. Yeah, sure. So Rainbow Plate is a beautiful Toronto-based organization founded by Janet Nizon, who is a registered dietitian with loads of different degrees and specialities. Um, her organization has been around for 10 years, and she really built it on this notion of shying away from teaching um, good food and bad food and being very dogmatic about it. And instead, she started building on this um, idea of like sensory exploration of fruits and vegetables. If you attend her workshop, there is real food. There are like, you know, beautifully like, you know, fruits and vegetables, like any fruit and vegetable you can think of, it's there. It's spread out on different tables, color selected. Children go from table to table and they get to explore all these amazing fruits and vegetables and build a new appreciation for them and understand that this is actually like the most precious thing that we can put in our bodies. And each child just can't wait to bite in a cabbage. It's just, it's incredible. I've been lucky enough to contribute to that. She developed a food education toolkit for educators. It's being sold to primary schools, educational institutions, so they can work with children in their class around topics of introducing more fruits and vegetables in their diet. I can't speak high enough of Janet as a founder, um, as well as like all the amazing programs that she has developed. Why don't you think about some free resources that we can put up on these interviews blog posts yes. that we can share, plus obviously the links to Rainbow Plate. Well, now we are with the closing questions of the interview and the listeners have heard already, you have really pushed yourself to be in constant exchange with people from different backgrounds, different mm -hmm. ethnicities. And with those relationships, you're also building projects that continue challenging people's ideas and preconceptions about food and culture, mm -hmm. which I think it's, it's a great synergy and one pushes the other through the commonality of food. I want to believe also that it has been a learning curve for you. Some things might have challenged you or required more time and thinking for you to understand them. So what have you changed your mind about food and mm -hmm. you know, food relationships recently that you never have thought it before until now at this point in your life? I think what was the biggest change is that until I was 27, I just I had a diet based on like chocolate, cookies, anything that was just delicious. Oh, cheese. Like I'm known for my love for cheese. I have a cheese problem. It came to the point that it was very unsustainable for my personal health. I had to change things drastically. So I cut out sugar. I became super healthy, felt really good good about myself, eradicated coffee and wine out of my diet until I got this job as a healthy schools officer. Um, and I was so happy and I was so excited because I was going to help everyone become healthy, just like me. <laughs> and uh, the moment that I got introduced as that healthy person, people were just like trying to avoid me wherever they could, <laughs> hiding their snacks. And so I was like, okay, this is not a healthy like image that I created for myself. I need to start baking with these kids. So I started introducing sugar to my life again. 
but in a much more like balanced way. And I started introducing many other ingredients into my diet that made me much happier than my very rigid uh, diet in the past. That was like a good transition. But I think what really changed me again and what I've been learning over the last year, especially um, meeting so many amazing people from different uh, cultural and culinary backgrounds is the meaning the love, blood, sweat, and tears that people put in creating a meal for you. Mm -hmm. And for me, that sort of like goes beyond any of my personal culinary restrictions. So for me now, my rule is like, I have my own um, diet and lifestyle at home, but when I eat out or when I get invited, I try to be really open to anything that people make for me. That is a real nourishing part in food that yeah. goes into your body. And then like there's the meaning all around it, like the conversations that uh, mm-hmm. come with it. One of the things that I still stand for is that I always try to be mindful, and this is something I've never changed, where my food comes from. And so I buy it with intentions. But I try to support, you know, the local producers where I can. Like, if it's not organic, then I try to go to a corner store instead of big supermarkets. That's one one thing that's really important for me and that I really stand for. Actually, resonates with things I've heard from people from first world countries where food is perceived more as fuel, they have built a different relationship with it until the moment they are exposed to a whole different notion of food that is way more attached to the emotional and the social and personal impact that food has on people's everyday lives in other parts of the world is when they have sort of this awakening, like in your case, start Mm -hmm. challenging their own ideas and Mm -hmm. relationships. Mm -hmm. It's about being aware of how other cultures demonstrate care for themselves and for each other. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. So going to the next question, I want you to recommend people a good book to know more specifically about food identities, which is something I think it's an easier way for people to start approaching food studies. So what have you got for us? Well, um, I'm going to be very uh, straight up with you here. I think the book that we worked on called Stories on Our Plate, Recipes and Conversations is exactly that. Uh, I will also set up a bit more background information and links to the soup book. Let's say again, that is a work that can be get for free. It has already been quite lavishly sponsored. Uh, It's something that you can get and we want you to get. So Mm -hmm. we're going to set up links for you on this episode's blog post. Jolene, how can people contact you? I'm sure there will be many interested in you know, getting in touch with you or that you can point them out to other projects. How can people find you on social media? Yes, the long-term plan for me is to set up a soup-like organization here in Toronto. I'm always interested in meeting new people, um, getting to know them and, you know, explore any possible collaboration. People can get in touch with me. Easiest way is Instagram. So my Instagram account is at foodwiser, which you'll find a link on the blog post. So now... As you can tell, we have a bit of a story, Jolene and I, and we decided to also uh, work together. 
writing something that speaks for our own passion, but we will really, really hope that will resonate with you and it's a sort of um, manifesto about what we think food is and at least at this moment of our lives and careers, we really hope that you can harvest inspiration or at least that each is your curiosity and, and ask yourselves what food means to you. What can you do to make an everyday necessity into a reason to celebrate you and celebrate togetherness? Okay, so food is an invisible thread that weaves through every culture and every person. Food tells the story of people, their land and beliefs. It is the sense of home. It transcends the time and space. It's love and connection. A meal cooked from memory is a link to the past, celebrates the presence, helps us tell who we are and where we are from and who we have become. That's it. I think that summarizes many of our conversations and many of our exchanges and reflections about food and our work and how, <laughs> how it has, the work of others has also impacted our lives. We hope it resonates with you as well. Absolutely. Well, and we have reached the end of this interview. I'm so happy to have had you here. I really want to thank you for the time and the thought that you've put in this conversation. I want to say not adios, but <laughs> until the next time. <laughs> Amazing. It has been such an honor and pleasure uh, to be on your show. I will say thank you for listening, everyone. And in Dutch, we say doei and tot gauw. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. This episode was written and produced by me, Rocio Carvajal. To find more information about the project, please go to pasachipotle.com. I have received many comments and questions about the private food tours that I'm currently personally delivering in the gastronomic jewel that is the city of Puebla, my hometown. And if you would like to know more, you can head to my website and click on the tab Food Tour. You can also check my experience, eat, drink and discover Puebla on Airbnb. Your starry rating, subscriptions and glowing comments about the show on your podcast apps and YouTube really help the podcast grow and continue bringing more of the content that you enjoy. And speaking of that, don't miss this episode's version on YouTube, where I included images of the projects that Yolene and I talked about. I don't want to give away much, but I just want to tell you that I've been busy recording interviews and researching material for the upcoming episodes about other culinary regions of Mexico, which will come to you very soon. Well, that's it for today, my friends. Until the next time.